First, I would like to begin with a word of apology to the members of Red Deer Lake United Church and indeed to all those around the world who are reading John chapter 12 today because the New Testament has just too many Marys. And what this means is when we read stories like this, people often aren't exactly sure who we're talking about. It's one of them, but which one is it? And how does she fit into the larger story? Now, one reason for this popularity of the name in Scripture is it be was it because it was the most popular name in Palestine for women at the time. If you'd gone into a market about the time of Jesus and said, Hi, Mary, about 50% of the people would have turned around and said, Hi, how are you? Because that's my name. So before we actually look at the story, let's make sure we are all talking about the same person here. Now, in Scripture, as I said, we must choose wisely between a number of Marys. The first, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's, that's not the one who appears in our story right here. And then there was Mary Magdalene, the one who Mark tells us Jesus had met and from whom he had driven out seven demons. This is not Mary Magdalene, different person. However, when talking about Mary Magdalene, we also have an unnamed prostitute in Luke 7 whose story is very much like the one we read here today. It was also a dinner, except she cried over Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair. However, the story seems to be different. The, the structure is the same, but it's from a very different source. So this is not that woman, nor is that woman Mary Magdalene. And poor Mary Magdalene has got stuck with the name prostitute throughout the years, although nowhere in Scripture is that uh, at all hinted at. A different person altogether. And that leaves us with Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's the one. Now, you met them once in Luke... And that was the story where, remember, it was also a dinner party. They seemed to be the entertaining friends of Jesus. And Martha was out in the kitchen cooking. Mary came in and sat by Jesus at the table and listened to him preach. And Martha came out, and she was not at all happy. In fact, she said, you know, this is very unseemly that I should be out there, you know, getting the asparagus ready, and you're out here listening to Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, it's okay for women to come out of the kitchen and listen to what rabbis are saying. And that, although it seems to us like a very trivial statement, was at the time extremely powerful because women did not study scripture or listen to rabbis. And Jesus said, yeah, go ahead, come to church, sit with the men, you'll enjoy it sometimes. So we have this story then of a dinner party given by Martha and Mary and their brother, probably as thank you to Jesus, because in John, uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So it was natural they would get together and give thanks. And the party probably went on, as most dinner parties do, in a rather pleasant way. And then, about halfway through the party, Mary gets up, goes over to the cupboard, and brings out a bottle of pure nard. Now, nard is a very expensive perfume. Uh, this, why what we're told, was probably about a liter in size. It would look like some of these bottles you see on the screen, which are from the, the first century. And it was pure nard. Usually, you got nard, it had been watered down or in some way mixed probably with an oil base. But this was the real stuff, right from the mountains of northern India. And it would have been extremely expensive. 
And when she got it out, she began to pour it over Jesus' feet and to wipe his feet and to uh, praise him. We're not actually told what she did, but it was the act alone was enough to completely spoil the party. Suddenly, we're left with this very uncomfortable situation. I mean, in a Jewish home at the time, following Greek traditions, the guests' feet may have been washed, but they'd have been done when they came in, and they'd have been washed with water by a servant. And then the servant would go away, and the people would continue with the meal. So to get up in the middle of the meal and to anoint someone's feet with oil was extremely strange. And you can just imagine everybody around the table going, I wish I were somewhere else right now. I don't want to be here. This is, this is awful. And then to complicate it, you have a single woman. There's no husband mentioned here. So probably a single Jewish woman bathing the feet of a rabbi in the middle of a meal. I mean, this gives the village enough gossip to probably run on for the next six months. Uh, but at this point, the story just ends and it, John forgets all about the nard and Mary and Jesus' feet because this crowd of Jews had come and they're wanting to talk to Nazareth and the story moves on toward Lent or toward the end of Lent, toward Easter. And so we're left with what must have been a most disturbing dinner party and with the question, what actually was going on here? And the answer is that we do not actually know. Uh, there are legends, there are stories have grown up around it, but none of them are from this period, and most of them come much later when the church was manufacturing legends and stories at a very rapid rate. All we know here is that in the middle of the dinner party, we have this disruption. Now, it would seem that what Mary was trying to do was simply to show her love and her admiration for Jesus. You know, what, what can I do to show him the depth of how I feel about him, how I feel in thankfulness for what he's done for my brother, how I feel about his teachings, how I feel about his ministry. And this may have been augmented by the fact that the clouds were gathering. The forces against Jesus were becoming more vocal. He was now in Jerusalem, or almost in Jerusalem, where that feeling was reaching a peak of what was going to happen. So this is probably what was going on, but it still comes across as being most inappropriate and certainly not thought out very well. And with that feeling, and if we understand that story in that light, we can see how John took it. John tried to give it some sort of meaning. He, he hints at you know, the fact that uh, she's showing Jesus' sovereignty. The rulers were anointed, so anointing Jesus shows that he was a ruler. Uh, anointing Jesus would remind us that soon he would die and his body would need to be anointed with uh, special oils and, and uh, herbs and spices and things. So John gives it that meaning, but underneath it, it's still an uncomfortable meal. But it's Jesus' reply that brings it into light. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Very simply, what Jesus said to his followers there in the room was, look it, leave her alone. She's doing her best. She's bought this very expensive bottle of oil. Perhaps it's for my burial. 
But she's, she's doing something, and she's trying to show how she feels. She's showing her emotion. Let her do it. Is this maybe the best time, or is she doing the right thing? That doesn't matter. It's the fact that she's trying to express something that's deep in her heart, and that's love that God has given her. So just step away and let her be. That's beautiful. And when we understand the story in that light, suddenly we're all there with Mary. Because in our lives, every one of us has done something from the goodness of our heart, something we thought would be helpful or show love or appreciation or something, and we've gotten into it and we suddenly realize, oh, this was not well thought out. Oh, no, this was dumb. You know, you're at the party and suddenly, you know, the conversation has lagged a bit and, and you think about Bill at work who's always doing something klutzy. And so you begin just to try to cheer people up by telling them the story about Bill and you realize Bill's brother-in-law is at, oh, no, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying this. You know, this is, this is really awful. You know, you're, you see all this stuff out of the cupboard at home and you think, well, I'm going to be helpful. I'll put it all back in the cupboard and, you know, make the cupboard look wonderful and clean. And then your partner comes home and says, you know, I spent all day yesterday taking that stuff out so I could take it to women in need. And now you've put it all back in again. <sighs> Well, you know, I wasn't trying to do something bad. I thought I was being helpful. Or I had a friend, I remember, who was a very good cook and had made his special chocolate cake to take to a birthday party and arrived at the door because he'd been asked to bring the cake with this beautiful cake, which I'm sure tasted wonderful, only to find that the host of the party, the one celebrating the birthday, was allergic to chocolate. And I was like, oh... Oh, I did. I never thought about asking. You know, how silly. Are you at work? Secret Santa? How many of you have Secret Santas at work where you get somebody a gift? You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. You know, so you buy the, the $25 Amazon card, and they, that sounds like a good gift. I mean, I'm not terribly expensive, but for exchange at a party, and then in return, you get a $95 bottle of scotch, and you, oh boy. Oh, no. They give very differently at this office than in my last one. <laughs> at times like this, we all need to hear Jesus say, look it. You were doing your best. Don't feel put down. Don't worry. People still love you. They don't love you because you always do the right thing or say the right thing or come from the right position. They love you because you're, you're at heart a good, wholesome, loving person trying to follow me. And if sometimes you're a bit short-sighted, if sometimes you act a little too intuitively and a little too quickly, it's okay. You're still loved by God, by the people around you. Don't be crushed by it. And I think all of us in life need to have moments when we do hear that because otherwise we do become somewhat overwhelmed or, or we become, I would say, even overcautious. We become afraid to express ourselves because maybe we won't do it right. You know, maybe we'll do it incorrectly. Maybe we'll come on too strong or not strongly enough, and, and people will be confused. Uh, thank you for mentioning the wonderful talk yesterday that Vi gave. And in that, we were talking about pastoral care. And one of the questions Vi raised was, why aren't there more men involved in pastoral care? This church has a very active and very creative pastoral care a group of committees but there aren't many men involved. And the answer was given, and I think it was right from the heart, that most men uh, 
just aren't really sure how to how to make a hospital visit. You know, how do you how do you talk with a person who's in hospital and has just got the the terrible prognosis? How do you visit a home where there's a lot of pain and a lot of overwhelming sense of loss going on? You know, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And and it was mentioned that, you know, well, you don't do it alone. When you're on the pastoral care team, you'll be instructed, you'll be helped, you usually go out with somebody else, and it can be done. So don't be afraid if you're not an expert. You know, I'm not an expert in pastoral care, so I'm just going to just go away. No, give it a try. Work it out. And if you're like Mary and maybe you don't do the best job in the world, you know, it will still be appreciated. You'll still be loved. And you've done something creative and caring for the Christian community around you and for the world. And remember also, and I think this is important, that in situations like this, there are always those who will find fault. When you try to do something good, somebody in that group will say something to put you down. Uh, I don't know why this happens, but it is. Here it was, of course, good old Judas. Well, you know, if you'd sold Denard, you'd have had enough money to, you know, pay for three kids in the village to go to university, you know, and you, you just did your pouring it over his feet. Just realize right now that's going to happen in life. You're going to try to do something that you think is very sincere and something that you think would be very helpful, and there will be some bright bunny who puts up a hand and says, well, I don't think that's a good idea at all. You know, get with Jesus, you know, yeah, just do it. Because that's what God's calling you to do. And let the people who want to complain, complain, because they will anyway. So you might as well, it's their hobby, so let them let them do it. You know, if this, is, if this is what gives them a thrill in life, then just let them be thrilled. And also remember that as, as we go through life, also we, we should look at people who seem to do something that's, a little bit odd or strange. You know, why would you give that kind of gift? Why, why would you say that? Why would you go out of your way to help that person? And, you know, think about it for a while. Maybe they are a little bit over-exuberant. Maybe they haven't thought things out completely. But give them a hug and say, you know, you're sort of a wild person and I love you anyway. And, and that's, what, that's what people need. And also, when you do something that's embarrassing as one or two of us have done in the past. You know, be willing not to hide. That's our first instinct. I used to call them in, in early ministry, about one out of every four sermons was horrible. I think now it's up to two in every four. But anyway, it's, um, <laughs> I used to call them hide under the pulpit sermons. And I mean this quite sincerely. You get about halfway through the sermon and realize, this is just plain awful. You know, this is, nobody, you know, and you, you sort of think, if I just sit here for long enough, everyone will go home and maybe they'll forget about it. You know, they'll all have a memory lapse and this sermon will never be remembered in their lives. Our, our tendency when we embarrass ourselves is to hide. That's when more than ever we need to go out to the community around us and allow ourselves to be hugged. You know, thanks for being here today. Was it the greatest sermon we've ever heard? No, and we're not going to mention it because you're here and we're here and we love one another. That's what it's about. And then finally, I think we have to keep in mind that no life is without a few stumbles, a few falls, a few times when we do really try to do our best and we fall down and get what we would call with young children an owie. When I was over with Hugo, my grandson, he's about 17, 18 months, so he's on that point where his life teeters on the brink of Aoi. You know, every, every step could be an Aoi or it could be he makes the next step. But, you know, that's, he gets used to it. You know, I fell down again. Yeah, 
and now I'm going to get up again, and then I'm going to fall down, and I'll probably fall down 17 more times today, but I'll keep going. And I think we have to realize this is when our faith, our sense that God walks with us, is really necessary. You're not going to get through life without always, unless you just sit on a chair and do nothing for the rest of your life. You're going to maybe embarrass yourself. You're going to do something over the top. You're going to do something that isn't quite appropriate. Hey, did you learn something? Yeah. Are you loved? Yes. So go out and don't be afraid to share who you are and what you can do with others. Because God will take the pillow you make for Mother's Day, no matter how miserable it looks, and it will be loved. And so we take with us on our journey this week our gifts that we can give to those around us. We may think they're small. We may think they're unimportant. We may think they don't mean anything. But keep giving. And in that generosity, you'll define who you are and you'll make the world around you a better place. Years ago, I was leading a Bible study. And it was one that went over about 10 or 12 weeks. I think we were looking at one of the Gospels. I can't remember. But on the final day, I said, we're going to have a potluck supper. So we're going to come... We'll have the supper before the study, and then we'll have the Bible study, and we'll go home. It'll sort of be a a goodbye and thank you to everyone. So we came to the study, and everybody brought, you know, their favorite dishes, the big pot of beans or mashed potatoes or whatever it is, the buns, whatever. Wonderful meal. And we all ate well and were happy. And then we left the dishes downstairs and went up into the study room, and we talked about, and I think the last lesson was on the loaves and fishes. And we talked about it, we discussed it and its meaning and all those other things Bible studies do. And we got to the end of it and it suddenly struck me, you know, Grant, you missed a perfect opportunity. We could have ended with communion because that obviously is one of the themes that runs through that story that Jesus continues to feed the church throughout the years. And isn't it wonderful because there's an abundance in God's love. And having thought of that, I, I just mentioned, I said, you know, it's too bad we, we couldn't share the loaves and the fishes with us now, but uh, maybe next time I do this course, I'll remember that. And one of our members, one of the older members in the group, went under the table and brought out his briefcase, which I think he'd carried for his whole working life. It was an old battered briefcase and opened it and took out two big, very much homemade tuna fish sandwiches. You see, he'd come to the Bible study not realizing it was a potluck. He thought we were just bringing our, you know, our supper for ourselves, and so he'd brought the potluck or the the tuna fish sandwiches. And then, of course, had been very embarrassed when he arrived to see everyone else bringing in their their bounty of potluck dishes. And so he'd simply hidden these away in his suitcase and or briefcase and put it on the floor. We broke the bread. We shared the loaves and the fishes. We finished the meal. We were Christ for our world. Had he planned it? No. Had I planned it? No. Did it work? It worked magnificently, and even after all these years, I still look back as one of those moments when the Spirit just moved everything in the right direction at the right time. Were they the best tuna fish sandwiches the world has ever seen? I don't don't think so. I don't think his wife had helped him make them. I'll say that much, but <laughs> maybe some mayonnaise next time. With, you know, but wasn't it wonderful? And so we are called upon in the name of Christ to take who we are and what we can do and to share it 
Sometimes it may not quite fit. Sometimes we're going to discover we aren't quite as talented or quite as smart or quite as wise as we thought we were. But in sharing who we are and what we have to share, we create the community in which that spirit does move and Christ, the living Christ, does live. And for that gift, for those gifts that God gives all of us to share, however we share them, wherever we share them, Thanks be to God, and the whole people of God say,